Let's look at the text for today. I will. I have many texts, and I'm a bit free in doing so because we don't have Sunday school, and this is going to be a full meal each Sunday.、Um, but Psalm seven, seventh Psalm. O Yahweh, my God, in you I have taken refuge. Save me from all those who pursue me and deliver me. Lest he tear my soul like a lion, rending me in pieces while there is none to deliver. O Yahweh, my God, if I have done this, if there is injustice in my hands, if I have rewarded evil to him who is at peace with me, or have plundered my adversary without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it, and let him trample my life down to the ground, and cause my glory to dwell in the dust. Arise, O Yahweh. In your anger, lift up yourself against the fury of my adversaries, and arouse yourself for me. You have appointed judgment. Let the congregation of the peoples encompass you, and over them return on high. Yahweh judges the peoples. Give justice to me, O Yahweh, according to my righteousness and my integrity that is in me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous. For the righteous God tests the hearts and minds. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword, and he has bent his bow and prepared it. He has also prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, he travails with wickedness, and he conceives mischief and gives birth to falsehood. He has dug a pit and hollowed it out, and has fallen into the hole which he made. His mischief will return upon his own head, and his violence will descend upon his own skull. I will give thanks to Yahweh. According to His righteousness, and we sing praise to the name of Yahweh Most High. Amen. Past couple of weeks, I've been reading from, as I told you, Spurgeon's lectures to my students. I mean, the man is full of great insight. And in that book, he said this: Our great master theme is the good news from heaven. We must throw all our strength of judgment, memory, imagination, and eloquence into the delivery of the gospel. Not simply delivering and preaching, but delivering that gospel to the people, and not. Give to the preaching of the cross our random thoughts, while wayside topics engross our deeper meditations. His lecture, his lecture to his students, preachers, he had Spurgeon's College, Pastors College, and this was what I've been thinking in my own heart. And his lecture, that phrase, confirmed what I was feeling. Because of my sickness past few months, 
And when you are sick like that, you just realize life is short. In the midst of that trial, you say to yourself and to God, Lord, if you deliver me from this evil, I will give my life to you. And I remember thinking that life is too short to be distracted with many other things. You and I, if you're a Christian, we already have given our lives to Christ. But we need to examine our lives to see whether we are really giving our lives to God or not. If doctor says to you, you have three months to live, you have two months to live, you have one month to live, what are you going to do? I know what you are not going to do. You are not going to waste your time. Because every minute then will be so precious to you. But that's what we are already. We are living these days, but we don't know what tomorrow will bring. You don't know when your end will come. Past couple of months, great pastors have passed away. First one, probably you have also heard, was Charles Stanley. Charles Stanley, different tradition, he's a Southern Baptist guy, but I remember listening to his program in the car in Houston every day I was going to uh, my school, college. But he passed away. Um, I've read a few books, Great Men of God, but I was sad to see him go. Now you know uh, Reverend Tim Keller passed away too. But the day before he passed away, there was another man, man of God, who also passed away, who died. Probably you don't know, but some of you may know. His name is Harry Reader. Harry Reader was a senior pastor at Briarwood Presbyterian Church, Birmingham, Alabama. I first heard him about 10 years ago uh, in a recorded sermon on a Westminster Seminary website. I've listened to his sermon. It was so good. I told myself, wow, there is a Presbyterian preacher who could listen to, who you could listen to. And at the time, I was an associate there, so I told my senior pastor, Harry Reader's coming to Westminster Seminary for preaching conference, and why don't we take all of our full-time pastors there to attend a couple of days. So we'll go there and sleep, have fun, participate in conference, and, and I made Harry Reader know that we were coming by tweeting it. And when it was over, I just approached the stage and I said, I'm Sam. And he just acknowledged me and that was that. He was very sick that morning. He really couldn't preach, so that was that. But right the day before Tim Keller passed, um, I saw it from Ligon Duncan's tweet that Harry Reader died. He was 74, uh, still full of strength, preaching everywhere, board member at WTS, um, but he died. What I figure from the news and everything was that he died by, through car accident. 
his car rear-ended 18-wheeler, and he, he died. I was just so shocked. I was just so shocked the day before Tim Keller died. And Tim Keller, we knew something was coming up through the updates, whatever, and he, was, he had a cancer. But Harry Reader, the great preacher, I mean, in my mind, probably the greatest Presbyterian preacher, died at the height of his career, 74 years old, still strong, full of strength. And he went to heaven in such an unimaginable way. I was in shock for a full day. People, we cannot pretend that we will live forever. Charles Stanley died, Harry Reader died, Tim Keller died, and guess what? You and I, we are going to die too. We hope that's decades later. But who knows? So it brings us to the topic of the gospel. There are many different topics that I want to talk about, we want to learn, we want to discuss. But if time is short, then we need to once again think about the gospel and live out the gospel. What is the gospel? What is gospel? Since we have been thinking about justification in our order of worship, let's say the gospel is justification. People, what is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardoneth all our sins and accepts us righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith. That's a wonderful summary of the gospel. But I am going to tell you today that there is a danger to that sola fide, to give an excessive attention only to that great justification, however important that might be, is to diminish other great doctrines of the gospel. Be aware, if someone talks about justification and justification only, and will never talk about sanctification, will never talk about perseverance, good works, you have to be aware of those people. The same person who said justification is the article by which the church stands or falls, he also said this, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saved is never alone. And I want to talk about today the other side of the gospel. You cannot only have justification. I would say justification is the first among equals. Just as Peter is, so is justification. 
in all of the order of salvation. There are diff- many different topics, and the gospel could be understood in different ways and from different angles. I want to draw your attention. I didn't print this out for you, but if you have your Bibles, if you have your apps, or if you want to jot it down, write this down. Hebrews 12, 14. Listen to this. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness. What's the rest of the sentence? Without which no one will see the Lord. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Strive for peace and strive for the holiness. Without it, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Immediately we understand then holiness, your holiness, that flows out of your justification. Your holiness or sanctification or consecration, depending on the translation. Your personal holiness is not an option in Christian life. If people only talk about justification, which I've heard so many times. Justification. Never talk about good works. Never talk about fruit. Never talk about perseverance and so on. Only that you want to reduce the gospel into justification. I mean, it's an important thing. First among equals. But according to Hebrews 12, 14, without holiness, you will not see God. You need to take your personal holiness, not as an option, but seriously. What's your first response when you hear that Hebrews 12, 14? Aren't you afraid? We kind of nod. I understand how holiness is needed, but... Really? I mean, I'm justified after all. That's right. That is designed to run to Christ, make you run to Christ. Another passage I will give to you. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says this, But by His doing, you are in Christ Jesus. We are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification or holiness, and redemption. So if you are in Christ, because of what Christ has become for us, among which is sanctification for us, we say the holiness is mediated by God through Christ and is given to us at the inception of our Christian life. So in Christ, holiness is given to you. The technical term would be definitive sanctification. I will give you another passage, verse. Hebrews 10.10 By this will of God, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. It is perfect passive. So having been sanctified. So what are we doing? What are we talking about? If you are justified, 
necessarily you must have holiness and sanctification given to you in Christ already. But you cannot say, that's all I'm going to care about. You must say, without which, without my holiness, I cannot see the Lord. You have to have both. You have to have the definitive sanctification that is given in Christ because Christ became for us righteousness and sanctification. But there is a warning that you cannot sit still. You cannot forever talk about justification. You cannot forever talk about what is given at the inception of your faith. There has to be growth in your sanctification. Again, without which you cannot see the Lord. So we are pursuing what we already are in Christ. So next few weeks, I am going to give you, today will be kind of an introduction. But next few weeks, I want to give you some of the framework that will help you understand how we could work out our own salvation in fear and trembling. But in order for me to do that, I want to draw your, draw your attention to Psalm 7 that I have given you. I'm not going to read it again, but I'm going to make a few points. Look at the introduction. I left it out as I was reading it with this intention. Now, look at the introduction. It says, A Shigayon of David which he sang to Yahweh concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. What is Shigayon? You know what Selah is. That's why I don't read Selah in the middle of the sentence in the psalm. Selah means pause. So we know that Selah, you stop. So I don't read that. Some people read it and as they read God's word, but I don't. What's Shigayon? If you have one of those Bibles that gives you the meaning of that word, nobody really knows what exactly those terms are. But what Shigayon means, according to one text that I've read, is a rhythm. Rhythm and a wild, passionate song. Psalm 7 should be sung. We don't know what tune, but not in a quiet tone. But it is a wild, a passionate song that I would say that you see in a Pentecostal churches. We could imagine David doing that. David will dance, robe will come down, he is dancing and praising God. He doesn't care what people think. And we cannot be holier than David. But Shigayon of David, this is Psalm 7. Psalm 5, in the introduction, it says it is for flute. Psalm 6, introduction, it is with stringed instruments upon eight string lyre. So these are the songs that they sang a long time ago. It's not simply a poem. It's not simply theology. But it is prayer, theology. People are singing according to the tune, whichever, whatever it was. So that's the background of Psalm 7. Who is Cush a Benjamite? I looked it up because I couldn't remember there was such a person. 
And um, there, there, there is, we don't know. Theologians, they don't know who this person is, but we know that person made David's life miserable. David was the one who killed Goliath, but Cush will make his life so miserable, he had to sing this in prayer to his God. I've told you a couple of characteristics of David's psalms. If you only read David's psalms in the psalms, you will notice that there are a few characteristics of David's psalms. I've said a couple of them already, and I'll give you a couple of them today. That is, look at verse 1 and verse 3. He calls God, O Yahweh, that's the covenant name of God of Israel. But he does not say, O Yahweh, God of Israel. He says, My God. Verse 3, O Yahweh, my God. They didn't pronounce this four-character word, Yahweh. They usually called it Adonai. But anyway, O Yahweh, my God. Look at Psalm 118. I, I gave you as a reference. Yes, if you look at some of the other Psalms, they will also talk about my, but only David, David will say something like this in verse 2. 18 verse 2. Look at him. Look at this. Look at this Psalm. Yahweh is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. You see that? Psalm 18 is a long one, but it is also printed in 2 Samuel 22. The same thing is there. When David says, My Yahweh, my God, in 18 verse 2, all of this, my this, my that, what, do you, what, do you, what would you say? I would say, he has a long history with this God. And he could recall a moment when God became to him his rock and fortress and shield. As we've been saying in the last few weeks. So my question to all of us is, what or who is God to you? Do you have that testimony? This is his testimony. He probably could say, oh, God was my rock in this circumstance. He saved me from this situation. He was stronghold, my stronghold, when my enemies pursued me. In this occasion, in that occasion. So if, you are, if I say, I will give you a minute with a paper and pen, write something about God. Who is God to you? What, what can you say? Can you say God is my something? And I am talking about your holiness. Your life with God who justified you by His free act of God's grace. This is life that is designed for the justified people, for you. This is holy life. Holy life is not going up into the mountain and living by yourself. This is holy life, walking with God. So I wrote down my definition of holiness. 
based upon Psalm 18, verse 2. Holiness is possessing God by living near to your Savior. Holiness is not a doctrine. Holiness is not a theory. Holiness is not even doctrinal knowledge or even not doing wicked things. It is all of that probably, but holiness is living near to God, your Savior. What's holiness? How do we become holier? How do we have holiness so we could see God? I would say, you need to be near to your God. You need to draw near to your God. You have to have this every day. If you cannot come up with, let's say, a few words about your God, if you don't have any of those testimonies, I am pretty sure your Christian religion, Christian life is empty, hollow, really meaningless, affectionless, devotionless, powerless, fruitless. People of God, this David shows us path to holiness. You cannot pursue holiness for holiness' sake. You need to pursue God. You need to read. You need to pray. You need to depend on God. That adds up and it is becoming your holiness. Very, very important. Justification, sanctification. Distinct, but it cannot be separated. If you only talk about justification, something is wrong with your holy life. But, again, I don't have to give you a theology or doctrine. By simply reading David's life, his verse, again, is the chief characteristic of David's psalm. You go ahead and look up other psalms. They are not as intimate as David's psalms. I'm not saying they are not God's words or anything like that. But David just lived with God. That's what I've been talking about the past few weeks. You live with God. You live near to God then you will be holy. Now, I'm going to talk about the main, main section for today. Look at verse 7, chapter 7, uh, 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 Psalm 7, verse 8. Another characteristic of David's psalm, probably this, this probably will wrap up some of the characteristics of David's psalms. The last one will be this. He's the only one. He's the only one who prays in this way. He says, vindicate me, or here in this case, give justice to me, O Yahweh, according to my righteousness. Zedek is the same word that talks about God's righteousness. But he's the only one, as far as I know, he's the only one who prays like this. Who could pray like this? Are we going to say David is crazy, delusional? He's a Pelagian. He believed he could be saved by his own righteousness. No, he is a holy man, sanctified man. 
And he can say this in his prayer. God, vindicate me, judge, give justice to me according to my righteousness and my integrity that is in me. Only question that I'm going to ask you is, can you imagine yourself praying like that? This is written as God's word to us. Obvious intention of God is that God wants us to grow in our holiness. That you could say even in this shocking manner that God vindicate me according to my righteousness and my integrity so that my righteousness could be translated into some kind of my holiness, my sanctification and so on. So holiness gives you boldness in times of your need. Only the holy Christians are bold Christians. There are times that you would, you would need that when you pray, when you evangelize, when you preach, when you teach, when you engage in ordinary conversation. There will come a time that you will need your boldness. But that boldness will come from your holiness. Because David prayed like that, according to my righteousness. Let's look at Psalm 1820. Look at Psalm 1820 that I gave you. Yahweh has rewarded me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he has recompensed me. Verse 24. Therefore Yahweh has recompensed me according to my righteousness. To live a holy life is to live a righteous life according to God's word. Look at another passage, Psalm 35, 27. These are our David's songs. Let them shout for joy and be glad who delight in my righteousness, David's righteousness, his people, allies, and, or in this case, Christians. Let them shout for joy and be glad who delight in my righteousness and let them say continually, Yahweh be magnified who delights in the peace of his slave. Do one more thing for me. Luke Psalm 7 verse 17. Let's look at all the endings of these psalms where my righteousness appears. Psalm 7, 18, 35. Notice how those psalms end. The last verse will say, Psalm 7, verse 17, I will give thanks to Yahweh according to whose righteousness? His righteousness. And we'll sing praise to the name of Yahweh most high. Look at verse, chapter 18, verse 19, uh, 49. Penultimate verse. Therefore I will give thanks to, Yah to you, among the nations, O Yahweh, and I will sing praises to your name. His name, he praises God. Look at Psalm 35, verse 28. And my tongue shall utter 
your righteousness and your praise all day long. So, this is the pattern. Affliction, prayer, and praise. But in these three psalms that I have given you, because he lived near to God, he could say, my God, my shield, my fortress, my rock, my salvation, over and over again. And that is holy life. That's a Christian life. And because of that clear conscience, he is bold in his prayer. According to my righteousness, I know those of us who are well-versed in God's sovereignty, grace, justification, are we saying David is boasting about his own righteousness? Is David saying, save me, like salvation in Jesus, in that salvation from the wrath to come based upon his own righteousness? If you say that, if we say that, we become Pelagian uh, theology. Basically, man could save himself according to his own righteousness. I'm not saying that. Nobody's saying that. But what I am saying is that that's in the Bible. Salvation from certain situations. When you are in danger, when you are in stress, affliction, and all this crying out to God, all these vindication psalms, you don't understand until you are falsely accused. Not only that, unless you are trampled down by your enemies. Your reputation is gone. Your paycheck is gone. Your health is gone. Then you will understand. Then you will understand these songs. Until then, this will not make sense. But what would you do at that, in that situation? David, the mighty man of God, but he was the only one. But... Because he lived near to God, he had that boldness. Deliver me, vindicate me, give justice to me according to my righteousness. What is righteousness that he's talking about? If you are shocked about this, you shouldn't be. Justification is what? What's the second one? It's not forgiveness. What's the second part of justification? We just recited. God accounting and accepting us righteous in His sight. So, people, Christian life is a righteous life. Because God accounts you, accepts you as righteous, and you go out. Where did that righteousness come from? For us, we have received Christ's righteousness already, imputed to us. So we have all the more reason to celebrate this and to live such a life that we already are in Christ. So Romans 3.22 says this, Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. That's what's shocking about justification. As long as we talk about forgiveness, we are fine. But did you really understand what you are reciting? When God accounts you and accepts you as righteous in His sight, what are you? You are not simply forgiven, Christian. 
I am a righteous Christian. You should be able to say that. Because the righteousness of God is manifested to us through faith in Christ Jesus and received by faith alone. What is Christian life? Tell me. It is a holy life, but it is a righteous life. How do we know? Let me give you another passage and I'll be done. Romans 6 is about sanctification. It's about life after conversion. Life after God has imputed Christ's righteousness to you. And what are you supposed to do? Are we forever going to talk about, I'm forgiven, I sin, I'm forgiven, I sin, God forgave me already. Once saved, always saved. We need to go, we need to grow up from that. I want to grow up in my own spiritual life to the point where I could humbly say, based upon Christ's righteousness, Lord, vindicate me according to my righteousness. I am not boasting my own righteousness to a criteria to go into heaven. None of us are saying that. But according to the scripture, this is how the Bible describes Christian life. Do you not know when you go on presenting yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. Did you hear that? Romans 3 is about Christ's righteousness or God's righteousness manifest to, to us. You receive that. You simply believe that, according to Calvin. You believe that promise. But once you receive Christ's righteousness, our life should be, according to chapter 6 of Romans, is one of obedience leading to righteousness. We are already righteous. But as you obey, not sin, but obey God, obedience leads you to righteousness. So next week we'll talk about already, not yet, paradigm. But for today, what a wonderful encouragement that is. What a goal that is set before us. You and I, we encounter so many moments in our lives that we cry out to God inwardly. Right? Risk. You don't know what to say, what to do. You cry out in your own heart. But as your conscience is clear, as far as you could tell, we are not talking about perfection. We are not talking about my own credit. We are not talking about all of that. In light of what God has done in Christ for us, there is room for us to talk about good works. We'll talk about that in, I don't know, in the near future. None of our works will merit God's righteousness. But once it is imputed to us, God accepts our good works in Christ, however feeble they might be. So I will end. David prayed in a shocking manner, my righteousness. Based upon all that I've said, I hope and pray that you could grow into the measure of maturity, that we could pray boldly to God 
according to my righteousness, which simply means my life in obedience to God, leading to more righteousness. But we are already fully righteous because of Christ, because we are in Christ. We are pursuing what we already possess. We are becoming what we are already in Christ. Let's pray.